0: the Fabrice Garia Show, a podcast that explores the future and tries to bring you new ideas and ways of thinking that can allow us collectively to reimagine what the next 20, 30 years of our lives are going to be like. My topic on the show today is exploring democracies. And I have to be completely honest. I am numb. I am disenfranchised. I am burned out by the... Continuing and seemingly endless struggle to fight for democracies and making it more vital. And everything that's happening in the country right now is as contributed to that. And my guest today really, really rekindled a sense of purpose and inspired me and challenged my personal sort of apathy in this this. This numbness that I feel as a millennial, and really making claim that democracies need to be renewed, and they need to be fought for, and we can't sit back. Um, Stephen Feldstein, he's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he's working specifically in Carnegie's Democracy, Conflict, and Governance program, where he focuses on issues of democracy, technology, human rights. In US foreign policy. Stephen has worked at the highest level of the diplomatic space in the US government. He was most recently a deputy assistant secretary in the Democracy, Human Rights and Labor Bureau in the US State Department, where he dealt specifically with policies of Africa, international labor, and also international religious freedom. His conversation, I have to say, was extremely lively. I learned a lot and it inspired me. Let's hear what he has to say. Thank you for tuning in. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, we have a special guest today, Stephen Feldstein. I will let him introduce himself. Uh, Steve, like please let us know like your trajectory and your pathway that sort of led you to discover what your passion is.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on, Fabrice. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a few years and I'm glad we could reconnect and do so over this podcast. Uh, so my name is Steve Feldstein. I'm a senior fellow currently uh, in the Democracy uh, Governance and Conflict Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Washington, DC. It's a nonpartisan think tank. Um, I, uh, before, before coming to Carnegie um, and where I actually met Fabrice, I was uh, serving as the Deputy Assistant Secretary at the State Department in the Bureau for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor. Uh, I spent a few years working on those issues, particularly related to Africa, labor rights and religious freedom. And then after there was a change in administration, uh, when President Obama left, I then uh, took a role uh, where I was uh, uh, serving as a professor uh, at Boise State University Uh, researching U.S. foreign policy and the intersection between tech and democracy. Mm. Uh, More broadly, in terms of my career path and kind of how I got to this kind of space, you know, I've had a longstanding interest since I was a little child, really, in international affairs, human rights issues, uh, issues of international justice. Uh, And one of the formative experiences I had, uh, I went to Princeton University uh, as a politics major, graduated in 2000, and then I was able to be to take a fellowship uh, to work in Rwanda for a year for the International Rescue Committee. Uh, and this was really, uh, you know, 2000 to 2001, it was six years after genocide had racked the country. And so it was really a tumultuous moment. Uh, and I was able to kind of step in, you know, kind of uh, at a very critical rebuilding phase and really kind of uh, get a better understanding of how uh, people try to rebuild after horrific violence, uh, and a country has completely disintegrated. Uh, so to me, you know, there's one experience I would look to that was formative in terms of understanding better the importance of respecting human rights uh, and kind of uh, starting to comprehend the effect that violence can have on a society. It was really this experience working in Rwanda. Uh, after I concluded my fellowship, I then went to law school uh, at Berkeley Uh, And then when coming out of law school, I started my policy career. So I initially worked for uh, USAID uh, in the State Department. uh, And then I moved over after about three years uh, into the Senate, where I worked uh, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, first when uh, Joe Biden was the chairman of the committee. Mm -hmm. uh, And then uh, I stayed on when uh, John Kerry came in as chairman. Uh, I then left after... Uh, serving about five years uh, on the committee, working on different foreign policy, foreign aid uh, type of issues, and then went to USAID and then the State Department. So it's been kind of a long trajectory. It's it's funny how the years kind of add up. I still think of myself as not that far out of grad <laughs> school, and yet I guess now looking at it, I, I graduated Berkeley in two thousand four, and we're now in twenty twenty, so it's sixteen years. Wow. Uh, and you know, I've, I've had a number of different uh, policy experiences, several experiences abroad, and other types of things. So uh, that's a short kind of sketch of my bio, but I, we can delve into any aspects further, that Fabrice, that you would uh, like to go into.
0: Definitely. I, I'm, I'm. That's so fascinating, your trajectory and policy. Like, I'm intrigued to hear, like, we could even dive in directly into the future. Um, because I think, like, a lot of our society is transforming so fast at an immeasurable rate. And a lot of people, sort of, when they see the future, they sort of look at this sort of high tech or or sort of the matrix or so they have like this sort of science fiction view of the matrix i would love to hear from your perspective like in real life like what are some of the troubling things that you feel or the ideas that you feel as a country as a democracy or or collectively as a human species is is that we need to pay attention for for the next 30 years because i i feel like there are so many, especially for underdeveloping countries or developing countries, I'm from Haiti originally, I, I feel like you don't necessarily see, you don't really understand, like I guess people don't really understand how those countries are gonna be able to adapt to these, these vast changes. Uh, so I would love to hear just your, your, um, your intuitions or your thoughts or your research that you've done in, in terms of that frame.
1: Yeah. No, it's a great question. And you know it's it's there's so many ways to approach it. I'm gonna just kind of focus in on a few points and then we can you know further take those up and and follow up on them uh, as you as you'd like to. So I, I think the first thing that I would say, you know I, I don't think any conversation about the future can can is, is a realistic conversation if we don't acknowledge the kind of elf in the room, which is climate change. No matter what we're looking at in the short term, whether it's the pandemic and the coronavirus, whether we're looking at the effect of artificial intelligence and technology, I, I don't think that we can you know, disaggregate ourselves from the looming issue at hand, which is climate change. And if I were to sort of look ahead in the future and say, you know, I now have kids, uh, and if I were to say, what is going to make or break the difference in terms of their lives and you know, their kids' lives in terms of whether we can sustainably live and thrive as a species? It'll be whether we actually get our act together and do something meaningful on climate change and the extreme weather patterns we're seeing, uh, which, manifesting, which are manifesting themselves every year in more and more extreme weather patterns, from fires in California to uh, record-setting hurricane seasons to heat waves uh, and fires that are breaking through Siberia. If we don't get our act together on this in 30 years, I don't know what we're gonna even look like uh, as an environment in terms of what we're leaving for subsequent generations. So in some ways, it's almost impossible for me to look past that looming issue yeah. at other things. Uh, and so I, I think it's important to kind of footstop on that, whether that's exactly on the tech side that you're focusing on or not. Everything relates to the climate and the environment that we live in. So that's kind of point one. Hmm. Um, second point, I would say, is what's interesting in the United States in particular, and I'm sure you're, it's something that you're probably you know, looking at a lot, is that... Um, um, you know, I'm very troubled by the specific trajectory of the United States, and, you know, my own country, uh, at this moment. Uh, in many ways, we're not only tr- denying the future when it comes to putting in place policies that wreck our environment, that are anti-climate change, uh, that are anti-justice, anti-you uh, uh, know, equity. But we have a president currently, hopefully not uh, a president for too much longer, but a president currently who is trying to turn back the clock on social uh, on social processes and social norms, uh, essentially to propagate a racist-based uh, uh, law and order philosophy uh, that was potentially appealing to uh, wide parts of the population, particularly the suburbs uh, in the 1960s, and implant that in the 2020s. Uh, and so, it, you know, it's really funny because on the one hand, we are poised on the brink of massive innovation, massive change, massive new things. Uh, uh, you know, uh, innovations that ICT, other types of digital technology have brought. And on the other hand, we have politically a reversion back to the past and a reversion back to some of the worst practices in our past that are truly shameful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just find, I, I, you know, I find it very curious that we're sort of at this moment politically in the 2020 election, we have one foot uh, in, in the past and we have one foot in the future and that we're getting, we're sort of, I, I find that the society is sort of being wrestled uh, in both directions. And I would also note too that, you know, generationally, when we look at kind of the past and the future, uh, you know, we have two candidates who are on the older side, uh, either of whom represents the oldest presence uh, that we would have historically. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's something that's also worth thinking about when it comes to kind of new thinking, new ideas, and new generations who are, who are ready to tackle uh, future challenges, you know, we're, actually look into the past for our presidential leadership Uh, so that's kind of interesting third point I would make is that you know there's so many different um, technologies to look to whether it's the power of social media and the way communications are changing the nature of how we interact um, and, and so forth but you know one thing I've done in my research I've looked a lot at how digital technology and politics intersects in particular how digital technology is being used by different authoritarian leaders around the world to, um, you know, to advance their own objectives. And some people look at you know countries like China and the practices China is, do, uh, is using when it comes to the Uyghurs, uh, for example, and they say the future technology in the wrong hands uh, is a future that's Orwellian, where it's all about control, it's all about omniscient uh, systems that see and surveil everything that citizens do, and that the ability, ability for autonomy uh, is something that in the future is going to be less and less uh, protected and you know I, I would push back on that sort of gloomy pessimistic viewpoint of technology and I would say that in my research uh, including for a forthcoming book that I've written um, you know I, I do think there's a very very strong linkage between the types of repression that already exist and the types of governance in place and the use of technology to further those objectives mm-hmm. So in other words If you're already repressive, and you already have a leader who is willing to abrogate human rights, then technology uh, will be used to exploit those divisions and exacerbate those tensions. But I've found very few instances where, in of itself, if you have an environment where rights are protected, where privacy is protected, where surveillance is kept to a minimum, then all of a sudden, with the introduction of advanced technology, you see a sea change in society. In other words, I think that the driver for so much of the political change that we see linked to technology is much more underlying repression than it is the technology itself. The technology remains a tool to be used and exploited either for good or bad, but that uh, it isn't necessarily autonomously driving, uh, you know, certain uh, norms and, and and so forth.
0: No, that's that's very powerful points that you've brought up. I, I absolutely. I think. I guess a question that I would have to hear your thoughts on would be because I, I feel like, especially in the U.S. and what we see now. Like there is the majority of population that are still sort of in the past. But it's like, it's like how do you even initiate this sort of level of paradigm change when, when you do have this sort of narrative that you've seen with like Andrew Yang or, or you've seen with other thought leaders, they sort of look at the globalization process where China became the factory of the world and a lot of the jobs that the US had, the traditional jobs sort of went abroad. And you also have this sort of race to the bottom where everyone's sort of looking for cheap labor. Um, like, how do we even wrestle with that? Because I think, I think a lot of what this sort of Trumpism or this Trump era is, be, is sort of a reaction to this, um, this globalization that we so much embraced in the 90s. And, and I wonder, and I know like for sure, like people, they grew up in, and maybe they've never encountered, let's say, some who's someone that's transgendered or someone that's Muslim. And they might have these, or they most likely have these prejudices that are racist and that are passed down. Um, I always look, I always look at it from a point of like, okay, we sort of have to upgrade. It's an upgrade of like a more comprehensive, more expensive view of the world. So I I would be intrigued to hear from one of the points that you made earlier was like how how do we even go about sort of having that paradigm change if people yeah. are so much, like so much of their identity is so much tied to the past and the way things were. And, and I don't know, what are, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, it's a great question.
1: Um, you know, I think there's, there's sort of two, two kind of ways to tackle it. So on the one hand, you know, there's a question of, can we slow down the process of globalization so that we have less outsourcing and, you know, we have kind of a slowing down of this sort of sharp deindustrialization transition. Uh, I think the answer to that, unless we're willing to dramatically change our economy in ways that would sort of take us, you know, back to a kind of, you know, uh, you know like less of a globalized system and less of an inner system, I, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's going to happen yeah. no matter what kind of rhetoric we have. And so then hand-in-hand hand with that is, well, even if – so if globalization itself is not going to shift that significantly, even if there are going to be changes at the margins, what do you do with the kind of corresponding, you know, kind of cultural resentment that has arisen as you get disruptions economically uh, in working-class families and families, uh, you know, uh, with earners who had, you know, strong blue-collar jobs with benefits who are now find themselves on on the uh, – you know, sort of suffering from the, uh, you know, the outcomes of globalization, you know, it's the kind of non-unionized auto workers whose jobs are outsourced to countries around the world, who are forced to, you know, take up uh, jobs that have no benefits in the gig economy or something like that. Uh, You know, what do you do with that? And so, you know, part part of what has happened is that you then have large parts of that population, formerly, you know, Democrats who are embracing kind of nativist uh republican policies and so you see a greater polarization in the united states you don't actually see a solving of the economic issue but you do see a closing in of the country and that makes for uh you know really sharp divisions in the united states and also doesn't really prepare us for meeting the challenge of where we need to be so you know i do actually have kind of a solution to that or at least an approach that i think you know can help alleviate the situation and it actually relates very uh, closely to what you uh, alluded to a second ago uh, in terms of what Andrew Yang and some of the others have proposed uh, when it comes to, you know, universal basic incomes or social safety se- social nets. You know, the idea that we have had uh, that's very capitalist in nature throughout most of uh, the history of this country has been your self-worth, your protections, your entitlements are, are linked to your employment. So if you do well, you're in the right job. You were born lucky in terms of a family that provides opportunities. If you happen to be of one ethnicity of one race versus another, then great, you're fine. And, and if you were born unlucky, uh, you've caught some bad breaks, you, you were born in a region or a country you know, uh, or part of the country uh, that is suffering from deindustrialization, well, then you might just be left out, right? So th- that's how our system has worked. So my, you know, the idea that a lot of people are putting forward in terms of reform is saying, well, why don't we decouple those two aspects uh, from one another? Why don't we say, instead of saying, look, everything that you're entitled to in terms of protections and basic human rights is linked to your employment, why don't you say as a human being, as a citizen, you're entitled to a basic, uh, you know, a quality education, quality health care, you know, that you're entitled, and you and your children entitled to food security, uh, to access to basic services right uh, and you sort of create that as a floor and then you know obviously not everyone is gonna have exactly the same kind of access but you at least have a high standard of income and a high standard of services that are provided that allows everyone to uniformly uh, enjoy a certain and sufficient quality of life like you see it in, in you know many Nordic countries many European countries you mm-hmm. subsidize that uh, through taxes that sort of tax those who make the most uh, to to get back, but essentially, you just want to say let 's reform uh, and, and reconceptualize the nature of who deserves what in what so far is a very rapacious uh, and ruthless capitalist system that is leaving more and more people behind, oftentimes due to no fault of their own, except for the fact of who they were born to and uh, who they 're born to and what part of the country they were born in uh, that to me if I could sort of wave a magic wand and say, here's one final reform that could change, uh, how things work in the United States, that would be it. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel, I think you, yeah, you touched on such a powerful point there too. It's like, I think all of this and what we have now is creating such like greater polarization. And I think that there is, there, is, there are these sort of sacred cows in our society that we, can, we can't almost, like we can't touch because you can't criticize capitalism you can't criticize um sort of what we stand for as a country but I, I wonder like what is like how do we even begin to create this political will for something like this because i feel like we've so we've sort of we've gone in the deep end where there's such great polarization in in so many different interest groups and this idea of coalition building is so it's so far away um so i would i would be I would be interested to hear about like what would be your strategy for, it. because I think there are like change comes at so many different points. It comes at, from uh, bottom up, middle out, top down. But I wonder what would be the most effective form of change in terms of, because I think dealing with the polarization issue and getting the political will is is so important because we don't even have an, an artificial intelligence like infrastructure of the in the U.S., of how do we, like as a country, how do we approach this new technology to be able to sort of serve the public or serve the public good. Um, And I think that we're so far behind in other countries, for example, like China. Um, So I don't know, I'm intrigued to see like, what what steps do we take to go beyond this polarization? Because I think so many people I've spoken to just realizes that as a country, we just don't listen anymore. I remember I even uh, just one more comment. I remember I was talking with a friend that works in the, I think it works in Congress and they were saying like, even the conservative like staffers and the liberal staffers that don't hang out anymore. They're not in the same group. It's become that like that sort of culture is sort of entrenched in the next generation too, which is very sad, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, you, you've embedded a lot of really important questions in what you've asked, um, some of which I think have better answers than others. I mean, let me start with a few, a few thoughts. So one of them is that how do you kind of build a movement along the lines of what you mentioned? And, and I think that you know among younger generations, there actually is a fair degree of unanimity and consensus about the need to tackle climate change, to get at uh, issues when it comes to the unfairness and inequities of capitalism uh you know to, to kind of uh really do something significant on these issues and that's why i think at least you know even whether it's a democratic party or others i think you're seeing a an upheaval where you know look at the massachusetts election that just happened it you know, just occurred look at some of the other elections the primaries where you have progressive candidates you know those who follow elements of what bernie sanders for example and his platform is proposing who are really gaining a lot of credence who are becoming much more mainstream than uh, you know, their formerly fringed uh, kind of viewpoints. I mean, if you look even at the Democrat Party and where we were in the 90s with triangulation and Bill Clinton and welfare reform and all the kind of moderate uh, you know, kind of the Republican policies that were put in place then versus right now and Joe Biden's platform, it's a sea, sea change. So mm-hmm. it's sometimes hard to see the progress that we're making, but I do believe uh, a movement that is you know, kind of being driven by younger generations is, is really taking root and I think that's that's really I think it's significant, and we just got to keep pushing that. Um, but you, you know, it, it's it's not going to come right away. Uh, part of what's important is it has to demonstrate political power. Mm-hmm. It has to show it can win elections, uh, and that the candidates who are who do do then win come together as a block to push that. I mean, just as like you see, regressive movements like the Tea Partiers really change the terms of the conversation uh, in Washington during uh, Obama's presidency likewise you can you need to see the same thing happen with progressives where they dictate the terms of the conversation whether it's the green new deal or other types of uh, initiatives and so they become the ones that others have to respond to and not vice versa i mean you know it's funny like when you look at when i look at some of the worst policies out there particularly those uh those with trump i mean what's really telling is that there is no platform. It's a cult of personality, right? Yes. I mean, look at the, you know, look at the 2020 uh, Republican convention in their platform. What did they do? Did they come up with new ideas, you know, for a second term? No, they just, they just reiterated what they said in 2016, which was in of itself a uh, mealy mouth. So, you know, there is a bankruptcy when it comes to ideas on, on the right. And I think that vacuum is something that is ripe to be filled with like strong ideas that can actually make a difference when it comes to reform. Now on the polarization question, I mean, that's, Tougher because what we're really kind of getting to, and what Republicans uh, have been adept at doing under Trump, uh, is really playing up to uh, identity politics and sort of playing on like white resentment and other sorts of issues uh, to try to polarize the the country. I mean, in other words, as, as Biden has talked about, the strategy, the political strategy of Trump uh, is to play up uh, white fears uh, in order to win uh, win an election, and so the you know the short term gain for him. Lately is sort of long-term division and polarization for the for the whole country, and that's just really hard to combat. But one thing I would say too is that I do think that our political discourse is dominated by extreme voices on either side. And if you look at polling uh, and public opinion, you know, really you have about sort of ten percent of people uh, on the right and ten percent on the left who sort of dominate discourse when it comes to their viewpoints, where the majority of the people in the United States still desiring to to you know to work across the aisle to find common ground you know to find concrete ways to develop solutions uh, to pressing problems and mm-hmm. so if we can find a way to diminish the noise and the distraction uh from extreme voices and try to kind of move more towards the middle and i frankly think a candidate like Biden, the kind of you know more pragmatic core that he represents at least from a discursive level, can help us get there, mm. uh, then I think we have the the, the room uh, to actually kind of push uh, a more positive agenda forward and hopefully kind of rectify some of the bigger polarization issues. But, you know, polarization is something that um, is not solved in, in, a, in a day and that many would sort of uh, offer that social media and other new communication technologies actually exacerbates through the, you know, creation of filter bubbles and mm. you know, kind of, self-propagating algorithms that just feed you more and more like-minded information and Mm -hmm. as well as sort of the ability of conspiracy theories like QAnon and others uh to kind of spread like wildfire uh so you know we're not we're dealing with a you know in some ways an existential challenge when it comes to technology communication and and socialization and the answers that we have so far aren't sufficient
0: I would love to hear more. Maybe you, you said that a little bit earlier on, on your upcoming book, if you're able to speak on it. Some of the, the key ideas that you're sort of exploring, if you're able to. Um, on Because you said it, it sort of ties in into the intersection of human rights and technology. Um, because I do feel like for sure, there, when, when technology is unchecked, when you don't necessarily have an ethical framework that sort of looks at the unintended consequences, uh, I think we're doomed to repeat the same. It's like it's it's sort of what you said earlier. It's is when you look at those those oppressive governments around the planet, those technologies are just a, a tool that's going to repeat sort of the the same problems. So I, I I do see like in the U.S. when you look at our history of slavery or you look at our culture, like there are there is trauma and there is systemic violence that does exist, and when you have people that sort of live and inhabit, and then sort of that same consciousness or that same awareness, and create technologies, whether good intentions or not, I think these, those sort of propagate the same problems. Um, yeah. So I would love to hear sort of your, your take as it relates to the research that you've been doing at the Carnegie um, uh, for International Peace, just any general thoughts you have there.
1: Yeah, no, all, all, all really good good points. So you know the the book that I uh, that I wrote uh, that's that's coming out uh, hopefully in the not too distant future. Uh, you know, my, my the goal of the book was really to kind of look at technology and to understand better how it intersects, um, you know, with politics and particularly with uh, the kind of use of repression uh, by uh, autocratic leaders. And so one of the first things I wanted to do was just kind of create a kind of logical understanding of what exactly we're talking about when we say technology. How would you break it down into different strategies and tactics? Uh, and then, you know, to sort of kind of delve deeper and say, well, what's the kind of relationship between the use of certain certain tactics like surveillance or censorship uh, in countries that actually are repressive? Mm-hmm. And then from there, I, I wanted to kind of take a step further and to go to specific, some specific countries and then to kind of ask, you know, okay, well, what does it look like in terms of specific strategies that governments have used Uh, to advance their political agendas with technology. So I went to Ethiopia, Thailand, the Philippines, each which has a different kind of context. Uh, You know, the Philippines, uh, you know, the political strategy is to use disinformation uh, to accomplish uh, political control. Uh, In Thailand, uh, there's the use of censorship in particular, uh, as well as targeted persecution, uh, you know, like censoring, uh, you know, different uh, social media posts and so forth. And then in the Ethiopia, you have internet shutdowns and you've had a past history of surveillance. And so each, you know, each country kind of uses their own tactics. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to sort of say, well, okay, based on and, uh, at this like, long look that I've had in terms of how technology is linked to repression, what are some other tactics and ways that technology can also help civic movements? Uh, you know, and so I looked, I looked a lot at different protest movements, uh, I looked at uh, groups like Bellingcat, which are civic investigators, uh, you know, citizen journalists, um, and and I've also looked at other ways that di- different digital rights groups are pushing back against uh, government censorship, against surveillance, and so forth. So ultimately, what, what I try to do in the book is I paint kind of a a picture of a struggle. I try to you know both provide uh, you know kind of context and um, and 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 a logical framework when it comes to what digital technology looks like and where things are going. Uh, I try to kind of break it down by different type of technology, and then try to ask uh, some questions about what does it mean. Now, a couple of just insights that I got from that, you know, one of them is that there's a lot of talk about uh, China and its uh, proliferation of technology uh, and, how, and how that sort of essentially is exploring digital authoritarianism. And so that's one of the things I looked at uh, in a lot of my country case studies. I sort of wanted to know to what extent are the Chinese influencing the adoption of authoritarian techniques by governments that otherwise wouldn't have access to that type of technology. Yeah. And what I found is that actually, you know, there's probably a bit of overstating when it comes to China's role. That uh, you know, the U.S., Israel, uh, you know, Germany, France, the U.K., Japan, many others provide advanced technology, oftentimes to uh, repressive regimes. Uh, it's not just limited to China. I mean, a good example actually is the recent events in Belarus, where mm-hmm. a uh, U.S. company, uh, Sandvine, has been linked to the provision of uh, censorship technology, uh, deep packet inspection to that government, which is impressive. So, you know, I, one of the kind of takeaways for me is it's a complicated context when it comes to technology and who's culpable. Uh, mm-hmm. A second, you know, takeaway is that uh, technology is very well. Every is very, you know, the use of kind of these. Uh, strategies is very much linked to the level of repression in the country. So the more highly repressive a country, your China's, your Russia's, your Saudi Arabia's, Kazakhstan's, your Pakistan's, the more likely it is that they will use a range of different digital technology tools uh, to accomplish their political objectives. Uh, But one thing I did find is that um, within authoritarian countries, it's not uniform. So some countries, uh, depending on the level of sophistication, The level of development will use certain types of tools, like you know AI-based surveillance, uh, versus other countries that have less uh, capacity. uh, You know, like Ethiopia, uh, which will rely on internet shutdowns or the persecution of online users as some of their main tools of uh, of control. Uh, So it really kind of varies depending on which country uh, you know you're talking about. And then a final thing is that you know even though authoritarian countries are more likely to use digital technology to accomplish their political objectives, uh, it's not just limited to autocratic states. Many democracies, particularly weak democracies, also rely on these tools. What's interesting, though, is that democracies, there tends to be a reliance on certain types of tools versus others. So many democracies, like the Philippines, will rely on manipulating information, uh, you know, via trolling, intimidation, harassment uh, online, as opposed to direct methods of censorship or surveillance. Uh, along the lines of what you'd see in China. So it's not that, they, that these types of democracies aren't using digital technology to serve their political purposes. It's that they're doing so uh, in a different way.
0: Uh, and I think
1: that distinction was an important part of what my research looked at uh, as well.
0: Yeah that's, yeah, that's pretty powerful. I think that it, what struck me a lot, what you said was this idea of technology being used as like a force for good and a movement. Um, I remember, I always get goosebumps from this. It's just, I remember during the Arab Spring where um, the dictator at the time was, so I think they were cracking down on activists that were organizing on Facebook, uh-huh. uh, the protests. And people from around the world saw that. And and they individually changed their addresses on Facebook to major cities in Egypt. And that made it almost impossible for the government to at that time to be able to crack down on those activists and i feel like that always i felt like that's always such a like this sort of the idea of the internet or the technology to be able to connect people across borders i think a lot of people see that as a threat a lot of autocratic governments see that as a sort of a a threat because i think cognitive freedom is sort of gives the ability people to be creative to imagine something different and, and gives them another template. So, and, and I think a lot of powers are, feel threatened by that. So like, I will be sort of intrigued to see like how, how because I think that we haven't necessarily seen how tech, technology is such a force that we can't necessarily control. And I think as a human being, like we don't necessarily understand in what ways, just the, the tremendous power that it has to be able to sort of create social change which it has like you look at me too movement you look at so many different types of movements around the planet so i would love to hear your thoughts around like and even in your research like in what ways that did you see did, did what there was there groups that sort of push back against those those forces those this kind of forces that are using technology in a negative way um against the citizens like w- in what ways did the people sort of fight back in a way
1: yeah, no, that's actually one of my chapters is really uh, kind of looks directly at that. So uh, when the book becomes available, please, you know, please take a look at it then.
0: absolutely. Um,
1: but, you know, there's lots of different examples. And, you know, some, ha- you know, over the, the kind of long term have really been effective. Others have been less, you know, less effective. But I have a few examples to kind of really point to. So You know, one one place that I looked at a lot, unfortunately has become a little bit more negative, was the Hong Kong protest. Because what was so interesting is that despite having a really advanced technological basis, uh, the, the Hong Kong police backed up by the Chinese mainland authorities were actually fought to a standstill last year when it came to activists being able to use encrypted devices to organize, to mobilize in different areas and to really keep the authorities on their toes. Uh, despite being kind of overwhelmed uh, by the, adva- the technological advantage that the authorities had, mm-hmm. And that's a an good example where it's really, a lot of people describe, you know, this struggle between repressive governments and activists as a cat and mouse game where uh, governments will come up with a certain innovation that they think gives them an edge. Activists will find a uh, way around it and in innovation. Uh, governments will then see that and they'll try to up the ante And they kind of just have to constantly innovate. It's very very, um, recursive in terms of how how it works. Uh, I'll give you a a couple examples of places where you have seen kind of longer standing effects. So Sudan is an example where activists were able to kind of communicate with one another, uh, to rely on existing civil society networks, use social media uh, to amplify those networks, but ultimately to kind of stay in touch even when the internet was shut down because of the strength of those existing ties. In Belarus right now, uh, as the government has tried to shut down the internet to stop protests, what you are seeing is that um, the use of proxy servers and Telegram uh, as a way to get around the Belarus Belarus authorities. Telegram has actually uh, emerged along with Signal, which are these encrypted messaging apps that are are able to protect the identification of different users as Mm -hmm. major, major tools that authorities have have really stopped timing authorities uh, when it comes to uh, mobilizing, empowering different social movements, and so you know you're seeing there uh, the ability for activists to really push back. Well, I think what's also interesting is that governments have less of an ability to cover up uh, bad actions that they that they undertake. So you know I mentioned Bell and Cat earlier, but there's other kind of digital investigative units that are, are around that rely upon open source investigative techniques in order to uncover what kind of bad acts governments are doing. So for example, Bell and Cat. Was able to trace the shooting down of the Malaysian Airlines plane by Russian uh, by Russian soldiers using uh, information gleaned from the internet and social media. Uh, likewise, they were also able to use uh, you know through scraping and crowdsourcing were able to pinpoint the identification uh, of the Russian agents who are responsible for the scribble poisonings in the UK. Uh, there's many more examples of that. Another example uh, is the use of uh, digital documentation when it comes to atrocities that have been committed by uh, Assad in Syria. Uh, Mm -hmm. While we still are a long ways away from accountability, let alone getting uh, Assad out of power, uh, this digital trove of of information does exist, and I do hope at some point in the future there will be accountability and justice that will be brought uh, in part on the strength of the digital evidence that is being protected uh, and saved by, by diligent activists around the world. So as you can see, you know, despite the challenges uh, th- that are inherent with governments that have uh, significant resources to wield uh, digital technology against uh, you know, human rights uh, defenders, citizens, uh, there also are many tools available uh, to activists that sometimes can be very successful in terms of helping them fight back.
0: Mm. wow. That I I have a question. I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts because that got me thinking about democracy as a project, as an experiment, because I know it's not perfect. And I know like when I look at, for example, the government of Haiti or compared to the government of the U.S., like the U.S. has more checks and balances uh, than other countries. Um, but I almost feel like this sort of democratic project there's this book by Fukuyama. It calls the end of history. I think that's the title of the book, and he, he makes the claim that liberal forms of government is the last form of government that's going to exist on the planet. But for me, my tension and my pushback is I feel like there's so much, so much more that can be created in terms of like equity, in terms of 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 human dignity, in terms of well-being, um, and mental health. I feel I, I'm I'm wondering from your thought like. As as a global world, and that's becoming ever so more interconnected, and then there's these emerging technologies that are allowing us to sort of perceive new fields and new understandings. Like, do you are you do you remain an optimist uh, for the future of humanity in the terms of of this interconnectedness? Because I think it's such a pull and tug. You're like pulling because there's so much historical trauma, and then I'm sure when you in your time in i think you said wawanda or uganda i forgot wanda, wanda yeah wanda you've learned very much around what like what trauma is and how it sort of seeps into this it seeps in and fuels a cycle of violence and i feel like a lot of what we see today in terms of conflict is, is sort of the legacies of the past um that are not necessarily addressed and even if they are addressed they're still remnants of these like structures systemically so i would love to hear just your your thoughts around like are you optimistic around the future of the world is there is there possibilities for a better democracy than what we have now that is healthier more vital and like what does it take um because i think it just it, it, it's such a it sometimes feels so discouraging to when you look out in the world could, the only thing that you see in the news it's just complete disaster. And when you read Steven Pinker, who says we live in the most peaceful time in, in our age, I, I just I just feel like there's such paradox and there's such complexities. I would love to hear your just your your gut feelings, your thoughts um, from your life experience.
1: Yeah, no, I mean you know it's a it's a great question. And you know, I think you know, the first thing the first thing I would say that democracy is a struggle, it's not easy. It requires constant renewal and commitment and that you need to have you know, a, a shared ideological understanding about what you're doing because uh, without that, without that kind of social consensus about why it is important, it's very easy for it to be co-opted by uh, authoritarian leaders. I mean, you're kind of catching me at an interesting point where I'm both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. I mean, I think, uh, you know, my my pessimism uh, stems from the fact that I, I am watching significant de- de- you know, a deterioration of democracy in my own country. And it's just it's hard to kind of rationalize why that's happening. Uh, I, can, I understand. I've read the explanation. I even lived in a red state for three years mm. and I see it. But I, I, it's just still hard to kind of um, really internalize why those processes are occurring and it does make you wonder that if it if it can happen in a strong and vibrant country as the united states and where is democracy safe Mm uh so that kind of gives me uh gives me pause Uh, on the other hand i mean what i think gives me optimism is that no matter what alternatives are propagated you know um to democracy usually different various forms of benevolent uh, or, or more severe authoritarianism uh, none of them really have, you know, I mean, in some respects, the end of history is correct in that there hasn't been the birth of an alternative ideological governance system, political system that people have bought into. I mean, there has been disillusionment uh, with democracy. There's been cynicism born out of corruption and in, in democracies that haven't lived up to their potentials. But there isn't, you know, this kind of uh, broad-based ideological embrace of an alternative. I mean, the most we can look to in that regards is, you know, maybe something like, uh, you know, the kind of polarization, uh, you know, or not polarization, the populism that's occurred. But that's very individual. Uh, frankly, that it tends to burn out pretty quickly. Uh, and so, the sustainability of populist movements, I think, is, you know, very much, uh, you know, is very dubious. Uh, and so, in that sense, I, I remain optimistic because I do think that of of all the systems that we do that we have out there. Um, democracy still offers the greater potential and possibility for for humanity and for citizens to you know accomplish uh, an enlightened uh, set of ideals principles and values Uh, but you know are we as citizens willing to put in the work uh, so that we can hold those who are corrupt those who'd want to pervert and poison our democracy at bay are we willing to hold accountable uh, those who need to be held accountable? Uh, are we willing to make hard choices? Uh, and, and frankly, to sacrifice a little bit as a community uh, in order to bring about societal benefits. And I think very specifically, this relates to United, the United States today. I mean, we are poised at a, a particularly critical moment where these questions of individualism uh, you know, and polarization are juxtaposed Against uh, kind of more social values uh, and the idea of, of trying to sacrifice for others. If we choose the former, you know, I I I don't know where this country goes. If we decide climate change doesn't matter, uh, social justice uh, equity doesn't matter, uh, that uh, demonizing other uh, minority groups uh, is a perfectly fine way to govern uh then you know, I, I fear for the future of the United States. On the other hand, there is a very powerful option, an alternative offer where we can um, you know renovate uh, the kind of worst facets that uh, our system is currently in. Uh, bring about a new consensus in terms of social justice, uh, you know economic equality uh, and climate uh, and and you know, I think bring about the renewal of the foundations, uh, to a democracy, because I think that ultimately is the kind of the bottom line for me. Democracies need to be renewed. Mm. You know, they're not gonna just persist on their own indefinitely. <laughs> uh, they will deteriorate uh, without a strong kind of renewed consensus about why they're important and coming together. Uh, so that's kind of, for me, the kind of bottom line question.
0: Well, wow. yeah, that's definitely a lot, of important question to ask. I, I, I have a final question. I would love to, just, if you could tell the viewers or the listeners and wherever they are at now is like what like and I know you talked about climate change or maybe it's something else, but what is one idea or one topic that you think that people should be paying attention in their own lives and try to understand because you believe that's gonna shape the future, the next 25 years of their lives, like yeah.
1: Well, I mean certainly, you know, I I, I think I foot stomped enough on climate change. So I'm not the same say <laughs> it again,
0: although
1: I, I think as a overarching issue, it all begins and ends with climate change. But the other thing I would say is, I think people ought to really pay attention to how technology is used in their lives and to not accept at face value how technology is used, but to realize that uh, it is flawed, that it requires improvement and diligence, and that people have an obligation uh, to push back and, and demand accountability, transparency, and safeguards uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to technology that may be used in an irresponsible or exploitative way. And so, whether we're looking at you know, social media algorithms, uh, facial recognition, uh, pre- releasing predictive uh, algorithms, uh, use of kind of widespread surveillance, you know, these are not baked in structurally. These are things that, uh, you know, people have a choice and they have discretion uh, to change, to modify, to reform. And so, you know, I, I, do, I hope that as we become a more and more automated and technologically advanced a society, that we don't lose sight of the fact that these are instruments to help enhance our lives and that no one has the final word on how they're used, uh, particularly governments, and that citizens have an obligation to push back when needed, and to never kind of and not to lose sight of core human rights values when it comes to ensuring that technology is being used to enhance their rights, enhance their uh, you know uh, their quality of life, and not used detrimentally to enhance the political power uh, of a uh, you know uh, of an autocratic leader.
0: Powerful. I, 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 that, yeah, that resonates with me a lot. The idea of human agency and really understanding what we have and in terms of the power in shaping the future. That's very powerful. Well, Steven, this has been such a wonderful experience to hear your wisdom and your, your thoughts. I think this conversation is just beginning. Um, I I wonder where can your, can, can the viewers find you and your social media if they want to reach out to you? Um and I'd love to hear also when is the when you think the book's gonna be out here? What's the title of the book if you're out to
1: share? Yeah, well, first of all, Fabrice, it's been a pleasure to reconnect. and now that we're both in the uh, same city, uh, hopefully and in, uh, in the future, near future, we'll be able to see each other in person, uh, especially when we kind of get the pandemic a little bit uh, more under control. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you know my uh, I tweet under at Steve J. Feldstein. So find me on Twitter. Uh, that's sort of one way. And then you can also go to the Carnegie uh, Carnegie's website uh, and you can look up some of the stuff that I've written uh, either recently or kind of upcoming events I'm going to, uh, you know, to be leading and hopefully you'll be able to tune in and, and you and your your viewer, your listeners will be able to check it out. Uh, and then in terms of the book, um, you know, I'm still figuring out the uh, kind of editing production schedule but I'm hopeful that uh, in early 2021 uh, the book will be uh, will be launched so more to come on that front but I will keep you posted once I have uh, more details on that
0: end fantastic well wow. thank you so much great
1: well thank you for having me and uh, best of luck
0: definitely thank you uh, bye Bye. thank you for listening to Fabrice Garia show today if you like what you heard Please share it with friends and family in your network, and please like it and rate it five star. Thank you very much. Until next time.